Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to be speaking to y'all tonight. Uh, the topic of our message is designed for justice. And there's a couple of things we're going to be hitting on in regards to that. But before we get into it, I want to pray together. So would you pray with me? God, thank you for being good. Thank you for being holy. Uh, we just are so grateful that we can trust you to be consistent. Uh, and I just ask God that you would reveal who you are to us through your word tonight. Um, help us to grasp and act on what is true, not just about you, but about ourselves and about the world as well. I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to begin by asking a question. You do not have to answer this verbally, but answer for yourself. Do you think that real justice exists? Hopefully you do. I do, personally. Um, but if you do, you have to believe in right and wrong, separate from your own opinion. Right? We all recognize at least I hope that we do, that we do not have perfect judgment. There are situations that we see wrong. There are people that we understand wrongly. And we do not have hope in ourselves of perfect judgment. Um, you know, if real justice or perfect justice exists, right, it has to be outside of ourself and outside of societies because societies are made of people. And if people are imperfect, then the society is going to be imperfect. So our hope for justice can't be in ourselves, it can't be in other people, and it can't be in society. I have a definition of justice that I think lines up with the Bible, uh, and along with that, we should define what injustice is. So I'm just going to do that really quickly. Justice is giving people what they deserve without favoritism. And this is part of a larger moral category, okay? It's God's righteousness. I mean, he's good. He's good. And so justice is one part of God's goodness, and righteousness means doing the right things in the right ways for the right reasons. We'll come back to that. But for now, just remember that justice is one part of God's righteousness. And injustice is violating the rights of someone else or doing wrong to them. And we see this all the time, right, personally and in our world. We know from our experience and from looking back at human history that hope for true justice is not in this world. In fact, people go for their entire life without justice, often. So if just, justice doesn't come from us as individuals, it doesn't come from societies, it has to come from something above those things. Something that tells us what is just. And the Bible asserts that this perfect justice comes from God. So your first point in the handout is God is just. Now, the Bible doesn't just describe God as the source of justice, it also claims that one day, in spite of everything that's wrong in the world, all the injustice in the world, the day is going to come when God is going to make everything right. Hopefully that gives us a lot of, of hope. You know, we see all this wrong going on in the world, and we think, man, is it ever going to be made right? And the Bible tells us that, yes, one day there's going to, there's going to come a time when God rights every wrong. The letter to the Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, uh, gives us a description of this. We're going to be in Romans 2 and 3 a lot tonight. So you can look at the first passage there in your handout. I'm going to read the first few verses there. Romans 2, 6 through 11 says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Justice. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, 
first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Now, some context for this letter, Paul's writing to a church in the first century composed of Jewish people who were God's chosen people in the Old Testament and Gentiles, anyone who's not Jewish. And one major theme he comes back to over and over again is that there's no difference now between Jew and Gentile, that God has decided to include people from every group into his people. He is God over everyone, and he doesn't show favoritism. This is important for a lot of reasons, and we're going to see some of those later. But what I want us to see now is that one day God is going to give everyone what they are due without showing favoritism. And one aspect that God doesn't show favoritism here is race, right? The Jewish people and the Gentiles. But it applies to every other category as well. Uh, your upbringing, your nationality, your social status, your gender, your wealth, whatever it is, like it, God is not going to show favoritism to us because of those things. Now, God is the standard for this justice, right? He is the one who decides what justice is. And it's not like God is obeying a moral law above himself, right? We, we obey a moral law, God's moral law. God uh, is just in character. It's one of his uh, attributes. So this is not a moral law that he's under like we are. Now, the second one there, uh, second point in your handout talks about this moral law, right? God commands all people to be just. That's the moral law that we are under. And there are a couple of ways this is identified in scripture. But the easier one, I think, for us as people to grasp is we're supposed to treat our fellow human beings rightly. Uh, this includes like being fair to people, not lying about them, doing what we say we're going to do, and actually even obeying government laws when they don't contradict God's laws. Uh, the Apostle Paul explicitly states later in Romans that the authority of government comes from God and is for the purpose of enforcing justice. Now, how this authority is used is not always reflective of how God wants it to be used, but that is the purpose of government, is to dispense justice. And I think this is pretty easy for us to understand, right? We, we see other people and we think, well, I, um, you know, someone commits a crime against me, I have the right to pursue justice, to get paid back for how I was wronged. Uh, if someone is being wrongfully treated, we get offended by that, because like that person is having injustice done to them. And this is horizontal, right? So this first type of justice is horizontal. It's concerned with our relationships with other people and with society. And there's one, here's one example in the Bible showing, telling us to do this. It's Isaiah 1.17. It says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. Now, we look around and we can see that people sometimes succeed in this, right? Like when it comes to giving people what they're due, when it comes to showing virtue, with our outward action, even people who don't believe in God do that. And sometimes people who don't believe in God do a better job of that than people who believe in God do, right? So this is not something that, that it comes from being Christian. This is just something people do regularly. The second way that God commands all people to be just is before him. Okay, so we have the horizontal to each other in society, but we also have this vertical relationship with God where God is over us, commanding us to be just before him. This is not about how we treat others, uh, but it's really concerned about who we are before God and our motives for decisions. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I want to point out there's one action there, right? Act justly. The other two are internal. It's loving mercy, walking humbly. So this concept of horizontal and vertical justice 
before God is summed up in the Bible as God's law. So whenever you see someone refer to the God's law in the Bible, you just think that's referring to both my actions toward others and my actions and motives before God. And when Jesus is walking around talking to different religious leaders, he actually rebukes one group on several occasions because they have this appearance of justice to other people, uh, but they neglect this internal character before God. Here's one example in Luke 11. It says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So Jesus says, look, you're doing all this stuff that on the surface is good, but man, you're neglecting the more important things, being just and loving God. Now, all we can see, right, as human beings, is the outward actions of other people. We can make some guesses at people's motives, and sometimes we're right, because even a broken clock is you know, wrong, right twice a day, but uh, we can't see what's going on in people's hearts. God can. So as we make choices, uh, you know, when we avoid doing something wrong because we're afraid of the consequences instead of because we want to do something right, God sees that. Uh, when, we have, when we know something's wrong and we do it anyway, God sees that. Uh, my four-year-old, Elsie, this relates, I promise, was pretending to be Beast from Beauty and the Beast the other day. And I asked her, like, oh, you know, are you a kind Beast or a mean Beast? Because he kind of switches. And she said, oh, I'm a mean Beast. I was like, oh, all right. And uh, I asked her later, we were kind of wrapping up. I was like, all right, I need you to help me clean up. And then I'm going to get you a cookie. Right? It was like this promise of reward. And she basically said, like, I'm going to help you, but I'm still a mean Beast. And I think that sums up a lot of our actions. <laughs> we're just like... Yeah, I'm going to do that because I want the consequence, but inside, I'm still a mean beast, right? Uh, it's really easy for us to do what's right on the outside while we have evil or, at best, mixed motives on the inside. And when we approach things in this way, what we're doing is swapping God's design for justice with our own. We're trying to pass them off as the same. And it ends up looking something like this. So what happened there? Uh, Harrison Ford, Indiana, if you want to call him that. It feels ridiculous, but whatever. Uh, he tries to swap something worthless, a bag of sand, for something valuable, a solid gold statue, hoping that the appearance right, is going to be enough to fool the scale. He thinks it's going to be close enough. I'm going to get it. Uh, but it turns out it doesn't work. And the consequences in that clip are a bunch of traps going off, right, including like the big old boulder. Um, the consequences for not meeting God's standard are way more serious. So Romans 2 continues in verses 12 through 15. It says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law, remember this is all of God's law summed up, will be judged by the law. It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the written down uh, word of God, they do things by nature required of the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. So this passage asserts that all people, right, whether you have the written word of God or not, uh, all people have some understanding of what's right and wrong based on the law written in their hearts. And we can see that too, right? In every society, even if there's a twisted uh, view of what's right and wrong, there's a view of some things that are right and some things that are wrong. 
Uh, every person, according to this, has a responsibility and they're going to be held accountable for obeying whatever light they have access to, this internal and external law of God. So if everyone who obeys God's commands, right, horizontally and vertically, is declared righteous, and God doesn't show favoritism, it's pretty reasonable to ask, like, how does the human race do with obeying the law of God? You know, you can think for yourself, how do I do with this? A survey from a Christian ministry of of thousands of Americans from various faiths uh, found that two-thirds of those people surveyed thought that human beings are basically good. And this is uh, over half of the Christians surveyed said the same thing. Is that accurate? (laughs) I I don't think it is. And and aside from looking at the obvious uh, answer in history, aside from looking at the obvious fact that no one is perfect, Uh, Paul has some things to say about that in Romans 3. So we're going to pick up there and we'll see what he says. As it is written, there is no one righteous. I thought two-thirds of people thought, you know, no, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's way different than people being good or even morally neutral. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So he's he's made this whole argument. Hey, if you perfectly obey the law, guess what? God's going to declare you righteous. And then he follows up and says, and no one's righteous. No one follows the works of the law. This is a huge problem for us. Now, that last word, sin, we become conscious of our sin, that is a lack of conformity to or a transgressing of God's law. That means we fail to meet a standard or we go past a boundary we're not supposed to pass. Uh, An example of the first one is, you know, we're commanded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Do we do that? I mean, the clear answer is no, at least for me. An example of the second, do not lie, right? God sets a boundary and says, do not lie. Have you ever lied? You don't have to answer. Uh, If you say no, I might call it in the question that. Um, (laughs) All of us have done these things, right? Even just those two examples, all of us have failed to conform to God's law or have passed a boundary that God has set. All of us are sinners. The law convicts us of our sin. And this leads us to our third point, God's perfect justice condemns sinners. This seems really harsh. And using the word condemn in any form of talk when you're talking about God feels bad, right? We don't want to think of God as somebody who condemns people. But we have to remember, God is the one setting the standard, not us. You know, his perfect, just judgment of the human condition is there is no one righteous, not even one. So we all, like all of us, without fail, overestimate our own goodness 
and underestimate God's. We are not condemned unjustly. We are condemned because we deserve it. That's a hard truth. And this doesn't mean only that we won't receive eternal life, right? We think, okay, I'm not getting the eternal life, but it can't be that bad, right? No, we have like a major problem because of falling short of God's law, God's righteous wrath against sin. And we can also understand, right, that the clear implication, if these things in Romans 3 are true, then we have no hope of ever getting better ourselves and no hope of ever receiving real, real righteousness from anybody. I mean, honestly, like what, what else would you expect from people whose throats are open graves and who are swift to shed blood? Like if that's true, of course the world is going to be messed up. So our hope for ultimate justice, right, the, the future day, that's great. We want that to happen because we understand that justice is real. But it's not very comforting if we're on the wrong end of it. Now, directly after claiming no one will be declared righteous by the works of the law, Paul addresses this problem. I'm going to pick up at the very end of the last passage and then go into verses 21 to 26. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, thank God it is apart from the law because no one can measure up to the law. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The next point in your handout is God freely justifies sinners. Now, to justify that word in the last verse there, it means that God declares us righteous. Now, verse 26 says that God is just. He gives everyone what they're due, and he's the one who justifies. He declares us righteous. When I say freely, right, freely justify sinners, I'm not talking about the value of the action or the fact that it was just something of no value, something easy for God. No, this is the fact that God is free to justify whoever he wants without being obligated to justify anybody. So here we see that God's just because our sin is punished to the exact degree that it deserves, right? God didn't spare Jesus. He gave him the full punishment that we deserved. And he had been patient before in punishing sin. That's the forbearance. But in Jesus, we see his perfect justice in punishing sin. The penalty for violating God's law is paid. And he laid it on Jesus instead of on us. God is also the one who justifies. He declares that those who have faith in Jesus are righteous. Now, in other places in the Bible, we're told that this is because Jesus' perfect life is credited to us. Now, we we did nothing to deserve that, but God decides to do that for us. He credits us Jesus' perfection. 
Now, to revisit some definitions, right? Justice is giving people what they deserve without favoritism. Injustice is violating the rights of somebody or doing wrong to them. What's happening here? It's definitely not justice. Because <laughs> if, we, if we fail to measure up to God's law, what we should get is wrath and anger. Now, is it injustice? Are our rights getting violated? Is something wrong being done to us? No, it's not. This passage helps us to identify another category under this a category of righteousness, and it's mercy and grace. God is righteous, and he gives mercy and grace. Mercy means we don't get the punishment we deserve. Grace means we get the righteousness that we don't deserve. These are not justice, but they are good, and they are righteous. Now, we don't only see this in God's forgiveness. We also see that in his patience. So those three things, patience, mercy, and grace, they are given freely, without obligation, out of God's goodness. I have a couple of stories that hopefully can help maybe put this together a little, a little bit. Um, they're both from my dad, and they're both, um, I don't know, it's kind of embarrassing to talk about. Both of them involve me doing stupid stuff. But uh, one time I was staying at my parents' house. I think I was in college because I'd moved out already. And... Uh, I was late to get somewhere. I kind of woke up, and you know, when you wake up, you're not thinking very clearly. Um, I parked in their garage, so I'm like, oh, I gotta leave. And I go, and I didn't hit the garage door opener. And so I just backed straight into their garage door. It was like, oh, this is so stupid. I had to go in and tell my parents, like, I just backed into your garage door. I'm so sorry. And thankfully, it was like still functional. We got it like up, and I could leave. But my dad, very calmly and, and matter of factly, just like, yeah, yeah, no problem. We'll send you the bill. I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, that was justice. It was deserved. Like that, I did a thing. I was held accountable for paying for the thing. Uh, a different time when I was in high school, I had like, you know, I had started driving but hadn't been driving for too long. I actually rear-ended someone in pretty heavy traffic on the highway. This is like not good. It wasn't that serious, but I kid you not, there was an ambulance, three cars behind us. So they just like pulled over and made it a huge deal. Um, <laughs> They were in a truck, the person I rear-ended, and I was in a, like a Nissan Altima. It's a pretty loaded car. So my car was like concave in the front. The truck was fine. It was ridiculous. The hitch hit like straight on, you know. Uh, but the person who was in the truck, uh, they were pretty shaken up. And a couple days later, after this attack occurred, my dad invited me to his office. I was like, this is weird. He never does that. Um, but he said, hey, Josh, like, I just wanted to let you know that the person you rear-ended is taking some legal action to have uh, at least you cover the hospital bills uh, that they incurred and potentially some other, other stuff as well. I just wanted you to know that, and I wanted you to know that I'm going to take care of it. And I was like, what? Man, that is like such an act of mercy and grace. And my dad wanted me to know that it was serious and that he would take care of it for me. And there's a few different ways I think this is a good example. First, my literal debt, like my actual monetary debt, was taken care of by somebody else who loved me at no expense to myself. My dad didn't say, you're going to be my slave for the next year and I'll pay all, you know. No, he didn't do that. It was just free. Secondly, uh, I don't even actually know today what the full extent of that was. I don't know how big of a deal that was. Now, this is potential that it's like nothing. <laughs> There's also potential that it was like a pretty big deal and way more serious than I realized. 
And in our relationship with God, we can't ever grasp the seriousness of our offense. God forgives us anyway. And third, my dad has never mentioned that once. It's gone. <laughs> like he took care of it for me, he forgave me, and he didn't uh, bring it up again to ever make me feel like I owed him something. It was forgotten. So look back at Romans 3, 21 through 26 with me. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This tells us that anybody who believes in Jesus will receive God's grace and mercy instead of God's justice. That is incredible. Now, God doesn't show favoritism to anyone by restricting this message. He tells his disciples later, and by extension even, he tells us, this is a message for everyone. Everybody should hear this message. He tells it to proclaim it boldly to everybody, knowing that God can forgive anybody. Now, I would warn against a really easy way to to take this and, and run with it is to think, well, since God gives mercy and grace to some people, that means he's obligated to give it to all people. And that's not true. Right, we have to remember that these things are undeserved. God is not obligated to give them out. No one's getting injustice from God. The second we start thinking anybody is owed mercy and grace, that God owes it to them to give them mercy and grace, we're not thinking about mercy and grace anymore. We're thinking about justice. So I have some responses that I'm going to go through. Uh, before we get to the blanks in your handout, I just wanted to hit a first and absolutely foundational response. Understanding God's justice should drive us to repent of our sin. Now, repentance means that we see our sin for the horrible, nasty stuff that it is, and we purpose to turn away from it. Right? We, we, we make a decision. I do not want to do that anymore. It is offensive to God. We should also turn to and believe in Jesus as the only one who is able to save us from the power of sin. And so if you've not believed in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, I would invite and encourage you to do so. This means you completely rely on him as the only source of salvation, and you give up trying to be good enough on your own. And the promise from God is that everyone who calls on him will be saved. We can be free from guilt, from shame, and from the punishment we deserve because of our sin. Now, according to Ephesians 2.10, believers in Jesus have a new design. We have a, a purpose from God when we are created in Christ Jesus, and that is glorifying him by doing good works that he prepared in advance for us. These don't contribute anything to our salvation, They don't make us uh, deserve anything, but they're things that God has designed for us to do. So believing in Jesus Christ as your savior is a starting point, the foundation for all these other ways of fulfilling our new design. So uh, in our relationship with God, we love and thank him. Before believing in Jesus, and if we don't believe in Jesus, God's justice condemns us. That is something to be feared. When we receive mercy and grace through faith, 
It should drive out our fear of judgment and make us so, so, so grateful. Like when we understand what we have been saved from, it should make us incredibly grateful. And the natural response with that kind of gratitude is love. In our personal lives, we seek righteousness. Now, our goal as Christians is not to be spiritual. It's not to be religious. It is to be righteous because that is what pleases God. Jesus connects the process of becoming more obedient to loving God all over the place. And one of the clearest passages is John 14 15. Jesus just says, if you love me, keep my commands. That's pretty simple. If we love Jesus, we do what he says. In our circumstances, rejoice. In Romans 8, Paul is exploring the implications that Jesus' death and resurrection have for believers. And in verse 28 of chapter 8, he says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And he continues later in verses 31 and 32, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God already handled the biggest problem by an infinite magnitude that you ever are going to have. Why would he not save you and work out everything for your good from everything else. And his point is clear, right? If you're trusting God for your eternal salvation, you shouldn't doubt his daily provision or his daily goodness. The promise of God working everything for our good brings purpose to our daily struggles with sin, our discomfort, our frustrations, feelings of anxiety or depression. Like, what is the purpose of those things in our life? If you're in Christ, it's for your good. You can be assured of that. If you're believing in God for eternal salvation, believe in him for the circumstances of your life. That's worth rejoicing about. When you, when you face incredibly difficult things, you can know that there's incre an incredible designer who is using those things to help you and to make good for you. In our relationships with other people, with others, we extend mercy and grace. So we're called to more than just justice. We're called to show the same mercy and grace that God gave us. And there's two main ways that we do this, right? Over and over, the Bible tells us to be kind and compassionate, to give mercy, to forgive each other. Like these attitudes should permeate the relationships we have with people, mercy and grace. We also, number two, we share the good news of God's mercy and grace. Right, this, is, this is something that we, we should be excited about and want people to know about. We've received such great mercy and grace, we should want everyone to know about that. In society, we advocate for justice and righteousness. Now, this is not about making society perfect. Remember, our, our hope can't be in a perfect society. But the value of doing this is that it honors God. It makes God happy when justice is done on the world. And our goal is not to form a perfect society, it's to please God. This is also not about our preferences. 
It's about God's design for what's good. So we submit our view of justice and our view of righteousness to God's. As human beings, we are designed to meet a standard by a creator. All of us fall short of that standard. And if we were left to the justice of God, we would suffer the consequences of failure. But God freely, lovingly, graciously, and mercifully rescues us. And he gives us a new design to strive for. So I hope that that is something that is gripping to us and that really affects our lives on a daily basis. Let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for making us righteous in Jesus. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us and the way that you treat us with such love when we don't deserve it, when we are sinners and ungodly. Lord, I'm so, so grateful that you bring us to yourself, that you don't leave us on our own. I just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.